You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast. I'm so excited to welcome to the podcast today Peter Hyatt. Peter is pastor of a church in Denver, appropriately called The Sanctuary. He is the author of three books, Eternity Now, God and His Sexy Body, The History of Time, and The Genesis of You. And in the appendix to that book, The History of Time and The Genesis of You, is an appendix titled Everything Good and What the Hell, uh, which is is, uh, some evidence that Peter has a good sense of humor. His church has been a gathering place for some great conferences um, for anybody who is interested in knowing more about the relentless love of God and a gospel message that we used to have in Christianity that seems to have been forgotten. So, Peter Hyatt, thank you for helping us to remember and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, David. I actually have one other book called Dance Lessons for Zombies that was published and put out years ago. Dance Lesson for Zombies. Well, you have a way, you have a good, you have a really good sense of humor. You have a very interesting story and a good sense of humor. And I'm going to try to put this all together. And so this, in this first podcast, I'm I'm calling it How to Fail Spectacularly at Calvinism, which is maybe not a bad thing. Um, (laughs) So uh, you, you had quite a journey in, in Calvinism and kind of out of Calvinism. And so I just kind of like to start there because your your dad is a is a minister in the in the Calvinist tradition, and then you're so you're the son of a you're the son of a Calvinist. Yeah. So what was that yep. like growing up? You grew up in in your you know in your dad's church, and then I think your dad made some moves, and then you went along with him, and then so yeah how, what was that yeah. Like? Well, being a Calvinist, a Calvinist in my house was great because I just had a great dad who really loved me. So he went to Princeton Seminary and was ordained in the Presbyterian Church, uh, USA. And, you know, I, dad just loved Jesus a whole lot. And you could just see Jesus in my dad really easily. But I, I learned to love Calvinism, actually, because of my Arminian friends. Once I got into high school, hung out at youth group. And they pretty much communicated to me that, you know, whether or not other people would spend an endless amount of time being tortured by God was dependent on how well I presented the four spiritual laws or whatever happened. We happened to be passing out. So that, you know, that's that's a heavy burden. And so talking with my dad, studying Calvinism was was really wonderful because I realized, well, people's salvation is not dependent on me. Of course, there's the other side of it that my dad didn't like to talk about because he hated it. And that was the side that if there was this place of endless torment, then it was because God, you know, chose people to go there due to no merit of, of their own. So, in but in my mind, Arminianism was more of a nightmare than even Calvinism. Of course, Calvinism was a nightmare too. But my, but my dad really loved Karl Barth. And after my dad died, I really dug into Karl Barth and 
I, I realize a lot of why you love Karl Barth because Karl Barth's Calvinism is a four-point Calvinism that's different than what most people think of as Calvinism. Okay, so that's a that's a that's a lot of history right there. So Jacob Arminius was a in the Protestant Reformation, and and he objected to Calvin's idea that God extended grace only to a certain number of people. And so Arminius said, no, God extends grace to everybody. It's just that people have to make a choice about whether or not to decide to decide to receive it or not. And so, yeah. and so the good part of Calvinism is that uh, grace actually saves. The good part of Arminianism is that grace goes to all. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And Karl so, Barth, and Karl Barth was a very influential theologian in the 20th century, whose writings uh, really, um, although he he never sort of went to a, a fully convinced Christian universalism, a lot of his writings about the power of the atonement and the power of grace were just so strong. And so, yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I think I think Bart was like an awful lot of people where the theological system led to an obvious conclusion, and that is that. Um, as in Adam, all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. But it, when people would corner him, he would uh, find a way to step aside. I mean, I've talked to some other folks that have really studied Bart, and I've heard from them that, yeah, he was being politically correct to um, not be, uh, what, a pariah in the Protestant church. Yeah, and, and at that time, you could you could be... If you if you said you were a Christian universalist at that time, that could have overshadowed everything. He he might have been he might have even sort of been excommunicated from his church if he had if he had done that. Yeah, right, right. And so I mean I think there are you'll find this over and over again in the British American Western Protestant Church people that work out a theological system that's absolutely beautiful that I think is four-point Calvinism, but then they bail on it at the last minute because they realize that everybody just ended up in the kingdom of God, and there are people that don't like that idea. So four-point Calvinism. Tell us what four-point Calvinism is. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, you could, I always think of this on my fingers, but you know, it really wasn't something Calvin said, but his followers said, um, and tulip is the way people remember it. But if you think of it as your, your fingers, number, number one, the T is total depravity, which just means we can't save ourselves. And, and this was, and Arminius has a problem with that one because he's, we kind of argue, no, a person's choice can save them. Um, and then you is unmerited grace. And that, I just mean, you just know a little bit about total, look, yeah. just that total depravity thing. What that means is totally depraved person is not just awful in every regard, but with that, with regard to the part where they're making the choice to come to God, they are depraved in that regard. So they don't have that ability. It's like right, asking exactly. them to do something that they don't have. Yeah. So I, you know, I think people can formulate that differently, but I like to think of it as, you know, if you if you wreck an old Toyota, it's not a big deal. But if you wreck a Lamborghini, it's really a big deal. And the thing is, we're wrecked, and we're really a big deal to God. We matter a whole lot to God. It's just that we can't fix ourselves. So um, that's the way I like to think of total depravity. And okay. then the second, the the you in Tulip is unmerited grace, which of course all grace is unmerited. It's a gift. 
And then the I, third I've heard one, that, that you is unconditional election too. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe some say that unmerited favor is how I've heard it. Right. Um, In other words, people aren't, God does not elect them because some of them are good and some of them are bad. God, in that system, all are totally depraved. So God elects some just because God chooses to. It's not because of their merit. Right, right. So, yeah. So I think that's saying the same thing, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that if 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 we really are saved 100% by grace, there's there's nothing that you bring to the table that merits that grace, which makes a whole lot of sense when you realize that we've all been created from um, nothing but dust and the spirit of God. So the whole idea of any sort of merited grace is absurd. Um, that, but anyway, that's another conversation. So anyway, yeah. the U is unmerited favor, unmerited election. The L, the middle, the middle finger. Now this is the problem. We'll get back to it. The middle finger is limited atonement, which means that Jesus really only died for some because a Calvinist say, would say that, uh, Jesus, Jesus death, um, is, well, some say it's sufficient, um, uh, but a real Calvinist would say it's it's effective. It really it really works. But mm-hmm. that's where they have a problem because that would mean if Jesus died for all, everybody would come to a, a point of of submission to grace and they would have faith. But that that's the middle one. Um, limited atonement. I irresistible grace, which means the atonement works to to lip and then p i think is the preservation of the saints in other words once you're saved you're always saved well all of those are are pretty easy to back up biblically yeah. except for well, the let middle me, finger let me just, let me, so let me, let me point back. out that the middle finger is the problem david i tell everybody okay. look it's this middle one limited atonement let me uh those last two uh the irresistible grace doesn't mean doesn't mean that you still don't have your part to play. It just means that it doesn't mean you're not going to be on some of a roller coaster at certain points, but it just means that finally the calling of God ends up being effective in your life. Yeah. Well, I, I the way I would say it is that grace creates faith. So you God really cares about a free will. It's just that none of us are free until God creates that good free will within us. So it's the story of God's grace in my life that creates faith. And faith is trust in who God is. So, you know, if you think about a romance, that's what every romance story is about. The guy goes around, or a woman it now, mm-hmm. um, creating some story of grace in another person's life where they win their trust. And so, you know, what I think Scripture is saying is that God, through this story of the gospel, is winning trust in the hearts of humanity. Um, and trust or faith is a good choice. It's choosing the good in freedom. But none of us are free to choose the good until we come to know what the good is. And right. I think that's exactly what's going on in this world of ours. God's writing a love story in everybody's life, which exhibits his grace and creates faith within us. So the, I think you know. I think the big story in Scripture is that we're still being created in the image of God, and He's doing that through the gospel story, through this story of grace. And then the the, the P, the uh, I I think of that as the perseverance of the saints. But what that meant in Calvinism was that if you were one of the elect, that meant that at the time of your passing, 
you would be persevering in the faith. So it was impossible that somebody wouldn't be persevering. And from people I know who've grown up or grew up in Calvinism, what that effectively meant was that they would not presume that they were one of the elect early on. That would only be after after they had really spent a lot of time in the faith that they might even start to think of themselves as one of the elect. But perseverance, that, but that drives a lot of discipleship in Calvinism because you need to be um, yeah. You well, need to be persevering when your time comes. Effectively, then it's just like Arminianism, because you're always trying to assure yourself of your salvation, and you don't know. So um, th- that's the that's the irony of it. Is I mean, both both uh, Arminianism and Calvinism, in the forms in which they uh, would embrace some sort of endless conscious torment. Both of them just create this profound anxiety and neurosis in humanity. Which I think is especially ironic in the sense that it's like Calvinism both discovers a pure grace and then makes people extraordinary, an- extraordinarily anxious by also saying, <laughs> yeah. but you don't know that you have it until at the very last moment and you need to be persevering in the faith when you die to, to know if you ever really had it or not. Yeah, so you're right back at the very same thing that was going on, you know, before uh, well Luther and Calvin really embraced the ideas, they end up back at the same place of anxiety because of this doctrine of endless conscious torment. Okay, so now let's get to this limited limited atonement because as I understand your story, uh, you were really um really doing well as a, as a minister. You took a church of 70 people about to a membership of 3000 Lookout Mountain Church, if I think that's the name of the church. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I can tell you that I, uh, I one time became the minister of a church that had 70 people in it and it did not go to 3000. Yeah. <laughs> I know that that does not happen automatically. There's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it, a lot of vision casting, just a lot of, of, of devoting yourself to a project that would get to that point. And then, uh, so tell us what was that like to build that church to that point, but then to be preaching your way along, I think it was through the book of Revelation where everything really kind of started to change for you and that limited atonement part of your theology just started falling apart. Yeah. Wow. It's a, that's such a, um, such a big question. I, I could answer that on so many different levels. I mean, first of all, you know, like what are, where is it that Paul says, you know, Apollos or I planted, Apollos watered, but God brings the growth. I feel like God has haunted me with that verse for, for years. I mean, there was certainly, there was certainly a lot of work and I would work really hard at preaching and you, you know, you'd, do the vision, the growth thing, and we built a big building and all that stuff. But any real growth is something God did. And on the other side of it, I would say, you know, I also had a church of three, 3,000, more than that, coming on Easter and Christmas, and I preached it down to 70 because the sanctuary, you know, sanctuary people connect online, but sanctuary is not, not that big. Right. Yeah. You went to, you know, I think part of what your story tells me is on the one hand, if you have a gospel message that, that has a lot of grace in it, but, but it still has that part. But if you don't 
you know, if you're not this or if you're not that, you're not going to make it. And that there are a lot of people in this world that aren't going to make it. There's some, there's something about that that drives people at just a sort of a gut kind of fear level. Yeah. And if you take that away, there's something about if, if you try to tell people about a pure grace that is theirs that cannot be lost and that God will ultimately be with them, there's some, there's some way that, that people kind of almost want, I'll say religious people almost want kind of the us and them mentality. And if that's missing, then they have trouble figuring out, well, what are we doing all this for? Yeah, right. So in other words, which is so sad because it just reveals that they love God for what he'll give them. They don't love God for who he is. And boy, that's that's a huge conversation. Um, so yeah, the, I guess the, the shocking thing for me was everybody really loved what I was preaching and I had preached it for years, just the, the beauty of God's grace. And I had even, it was preaching through revelation when you, when you get to the end and the voice from the throne says, behold, I make all things new. I remember the very day I said, look, everybody, it's, that's just what he says. And I don't know how to explain it away anymore. Well, that was years before I got defrocked and people loved it and people loved coming to the church. But when a few people started to say, well, hey, wait a minute, what about what about hell? What about people being endlessly tormented in hell? And I began to say, well, maybe they're not. Most people really loved it. But when the authorities came in and said, you can't say this anymore, and, and they basically put an ultimatum on me that I had to stand up and confess, uh, basically that Jesus wasn't powerful enough to save or Jesus didn't want to save either Calvinism or Arminianism, um, until they came in and uh, put me on trial, uh, most people were really thrilled with it. In fact, the congregation still was thrilled with it. It was the leadership of the church. The board wouldn't allow the congregation to have a vote to leave the denomination. Um, and, the, and then I think a lot of people really struggled because it's it's a bit scary, but I think a lot of us are religious because we want to be part of a group. And when you're rejected by the people that are seen in authority, people kind of don't know what to do with it. And then what you also said is really true. Institutions of this world really grow by scapegoating, you know, finding someone out there to blame and saying, if you join our group, you're in. And if you don't, you're out. And the the sermon that really put me over the edge was kind of the parable of the vineyard and i you know i told the story about the that jesus tells about the uh late workers being paid just the same as the early workers mm -hmm. and i said hey you know what if what if everybody gets in what if everybody's saved what is how does that make you feel because if that makes you angry maybe you're not saved um, and, and I do think there's this place of outer darkness. So ironically, it's the people that have trouble with grace that end up in that place of outer darkness, weeping and gnashing their teeth. It's not that they'll ever be saved. It's that they hate the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is this place of absolute grace. Yeah, so, it's easy. Yeah, why I don't am know I where doing that, that? Where that started? <laughs> well, no, but the funny thing is, you know, if everybody is going to make it, then why am I doing all this? Yeah. And and I would say, well, look, if you need a motivation, this place of outer darkness of weeping and gnashing of teeth is, is real. But 
because you're just because you're afraid of that place doesn't mean you're going to get into the kingdom. You have to fall in love with the king. You have to trust the king. And so if you say, um, why be good? Well, that tells me that you obviously don't love the good. And now this is the shocking surprise. The gospel is so simple and on one level. God is the good. And so what what is the judgment? Well, do you want him or not? In other words, God wants you to want to come to the great banquet and sit with him. He wants you to love love. And the shocking truth is that most of humanity, well, we don't love. No one loves love until love creates that desire within the human heart, which is exactly what all the prophets say in the Old Testament, that God is about taking out our heart of stone and giving us this new heart of flesh or a heart mm-hmm. that that loves. And that gets back to those, you know, unmerited, all the doctrines of yeah. Calvinism. And I can't give myself heart surgery. It's well, one of the things, one of the things that was a problem for me, I didn't grow up going to church. And um, so I, I had various presentations of the gospel given to me while I, as I was, you know, a teenager. And uh, essentially they were asking me to love a being who would torture me forever if I didn't yeah. love him back. Yeah. And, yeah, it's so funny. Um, it's funny. It's, so a, it's sadly funny. Yeah. I couldn't fall in love with somebody who was trying to figure out if they were going to torture me or not. Yeah, right. I just couldn't, right. I couldn't do that. And, what, and, what, and the people that I talked to said, well, you better, or you, or he's going to torture you forever. And yeah. I said, well, I just don't know about that. And they said, well, you need to make up your mind because if you die tonight, he's going to start torching you tomorrow forever and ever and ever. And I just, I'm said, I'm sorry, I can't figure that out. And the way that they presented it to me wasn't, hey, this is one way that Christians have understood things. The way they presented it to me was, this is what the Bible said. This is what Christians have always believed. So you either accept all of it or you reject all of it. And so when I rejected that, I thought I'd rejected all of it. Yeah. Right, exactly, and and it's just not the it's just not the case. It's, I mean, I think the whole idea of endless conscious torment is just entirely unbiblical. You just can't get it to work, and clearly, the church has not always said that. I mean, the church that my dad didn't say that. He he would, you know, I grew up with this with a wonderful dad. He he didn't know quite how to deal with endless conscious torment, but he hated it, and he would just tell me, look. God is love. And and this that got me by for, you know, all my early years. I thought, mm-hmm. okay, God is like dad, but only better. And, and you know, and dad would always say, look, you, you're just going to have to trust God with some of these scary verses. But when I got into the verses, I realized they didn't say that. And then I realized, of course, that so much of the church really hadn't said that. And certainly the early church didn't say that. And And it makes sense that the church began to really say that with the Roman empire, because that's how empires work. That's how institutions of this world work. So I think the the problem with the church is it becomes a principality and power of this world. And the way principalities and powers of this world grow is through a system of threats and, and punishment. Yeah. What was really and, funny. And they operate so differently than a family. So if God is a yeah. dad and if Jesus is a bridegroom, right. it's a different, it's a different um, paradigm. Yeah. The funny thing was, is, um, you know, like, like being on the outside of all of this when I was growing up, they, they would sometimes explain to me, I got the idea that, well, what is a Protestant? They would say, well, Protestants are people that we rejected the traditions of men so that we can read the Bible in its pure form. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, but right. then what I found out was that they had swallowed one of the biggest traditions of all, the whole Augustinian eternal torment, original sin paradigm that had started really strongly in, in West, what became Western Christianity, but did not exist in the early centuries of the church. And so they were telling me, oh, we don't go by the traditions of men. But then what I found out was that they, they were actually functioning under one of the greatest traditions, a 1,500-year tradition of original sin and eternal torment that had been started in the Roman Imperial Western Church. Uh, and when I found out that there was no, there was 500 years before that, when, no, that wasn't the, and, and one of the first conferences that I went to at your church was the Forgotten Gospel yeah. Conference. And I thought that was a beautifully titled conference because it's not that Christianity never had a good gospel. It's that we forgot it, at least in yeah. Western Christianity. Could you say some, something about that? Yeah, that's why I've said to a lot of people, I, you know, people have said, what does the church need? And I, I have felt like, well, we just need to keep going with the Reformation. So, and this is what I argued with my denomination. We had this saying that uh, that, we, that a re reform faith means that we are reformed and always reforming according to God's word. So, Luther and Calvin inherited a Christian tradition that was remarkably corrupt, and they reformed it a long way. But when they died, they would would tell their followers, "Look, you've got to let be keep being reformed according to the word in, in Scripture that goes back to the first century that that you know is really a continuation of what happens in the Old Testament." And we stopped. We uh, canonized Luther and Calvin and some others, and stopped at Augustine. And we needed to. I think we needed to keep going. So. For me, it was kind of shocking because I really struggled with seeing a whole lot of these things in Scripture and not knowing how to explain them away that God would um, reconcile all things to himself. Yeah. And then years later, I was surprised to realize, oh, the church fathers said this, too. It wasn't I, I'm not the only one. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, I've been I, I've been having some talks. I did some interviews with uh, Petri Tika yeah. uh, from uh, from Helsinki. And he's Lutheran, and he's doing his uh, doctoral dissertation now on how Luther actually tried to affirm both of these. He tried to affirm that actually salvation was by grace alone, and that grace actually was extended to all. And he said that what that ended up with in Lutheran theology was this paradox that nobody could explain. Yeah. And, uh, and because they also thought, well, there's God's judgment and some will be lost. And so it, they, he said— he was essentially handed something that he that didn't make sense, and he is trying to work that out. So it's kind of interesting that in the Protestant Reformation, you actually have both of these ideas that are really strongly put, that grace does go to all and that grace actually saves alone. Those yeah. are both affirmed very strongly, not but sort of by different camps. And Luther tried to actually affirm both of them, both of them together. And so I guess what I'm seeing is that there are there's a movement now to try to basically put it all back together yeah, and to, and to, and to remember an earlier understanding. Yeah. And ironically, it's the institutional church that is the biggest obstacle. And it's not an accident that in scripture, it's the institutional church the ins and the ecclesia, the people that got it called out, which, you know, I, I, I know that we, 
I think John refers to as the Jews, but the Jewish leaders that end up crucifying Christ because grace is just not something that the principalities and powers of this world like that undercuts their the the way they operate. And then and then the irony of that. I remember when I when I went to seminary, I sort of figured out is like, wait a second, we're kind of reprising the role. We're, <laughs> exactly. We're exactly. we're doing the same thing. We're we're yeah. making a system out of this again, and and well, that's, it's all it's all grace, and we're 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 trying to make another system out of it. Well, that's what the see. So this is some that's the book Dance Lessons for Zombies that I mentioned is on is about the Sermon on the Mount, and that was something I was realizing as I was preaching through Matthew too. Holy crap! Where are the Pharisees? It became just really obvious to me. And then, you know, preaching through the Revelation, so many other books, and I realized, and we're, we're, the, we're the chief enemies of grace, the institutional church. And um, n- no wonder that Jesus said the tax collectors and sinners would go into the kingdom ahead of you. He said that to the Pharisees, uh, because we've been seduced by our own ability to save ourselves. I, I think ultimately, David, everybody has faith in one of two things, and I say it this way. You either have faith in Jesus, and the name means God is salvation, or you have faith in Mises, which means I am my own salvation. <laughs> and that's such a deep existential Jesus or Mises. Devi- Jesus or Mises. <laughs> and, and my old man, I still have an old man that gives me all sorts of problems, and that's the guy in me that believes that Peter Hyatt is his own salvation. But there's also a new me that trusts that God is really salvation. And when I live out of one, I walk in righteousness but the righteousness is not my own. It's a gift from God. And when I walk in the other, I'm self-righteous. And that's the prison that I have to be delivered from. Yeah, this was a this was another thing that scared me about Christianity when I was growing up. They said that you need to come to Christ so that he can kill you. And, <laughs> um, and then what he's going to do is he's going to put himself inside you, and then you're going to be good. And it's like, well, so, so if I come to him, he's going to kill me. And he's going to put a new person in here in my, and there were also some people at my high school who had gone through radical conversions and they had gone from really freewheeling, fun people to Bible carrying uh, people that you did not want to spend time with. And it's like, if that's what Jesus does to people, I don't know if I want to let him, if I don't, if I want to let him in or not. Right. Um, But then I started to, to realize there was another way of thinking about it in which God is perfect love. I am God's child, and the perfect love of God is in me. That's that's who I'm destined to to be. That's who I am at the deepest level. But there's a kind of a false self that can get that can get going, and it's that false self that Jesus is after, in in, right. in order in order that I might be who I am truly created to be, and I'm created to be a, a child of this perfect, this being of perfect love. Anyway, once I got that straightened out, that God, that Jesus wasn't trying to destroy me, Jesus was trying to liberate me, that also helped me as well. Yeah, the 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 hard thing to wrap your head around is he's trying to liberate you from you, from the fault, this you that believes you save yourself. I, I think we're, Protestants have kind of messed up is we've reacted against we, we're still suffering a hangover from the Reformation. So we re- reacted against the Catholic Church. We've sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. But, I, you know, I think in Roman Catholic theology, you have this peace of God that's in you 
that is the true you from the moment of your conception when God or whenever, whatever you argue there, the moment when God breathed his spirit into the dust. And Paul really kind of talks that way too. So I like to think of a human being as a temple, which is exactly what Jesus said. And in the very depths of the temple behind the curtain is the very spirit of God sitting on a, on a throne. But my conscious self has been exiled from the most deepest parts of myself, which is really that the garden of Eden. And so the story of me coming to Jesus is also the story of me coming back to my true self, my honest self. And so when a person becomes a Christian, that that veil in the temple that is really in the depths of your soul, it splits from the top to the bottom. And that the breath of God, which is in you, then begins to invade your whole temple and begins to invade your whole body. And, and you're liberated. You're really liberated from your own ego. So it's my, my ego is... Another word for the ego is Mises. It's the me that believes mm-hmm. I'm going to save myself. And the me that believes I'm going to, that Jesus saves me is somehow in union with Jesus. It's the very spirit of God within me. So there's a whole lot of mystery there, but it's so beautiful. Yeah. And every person is this infinite treasure because they're a, they're a temple that contains the, the spirit of God. Let me, um, I'd like to to move some of, uh, to uh, some of the scriptures that you found really persuasive along the way because you talk about Bible verses banned by Bible-believing believers. Yeah, yeah right. And, and, and then you've also mentioned that there was some preaching through Revelation where you, where you hit some of those verses, and there were some other verses, and I think you even said it was, it was really a, a Bible software program that got you into trouble, you said one time, because you just kept researching these words in these different passages, and you finally just couldn't explain it all the way. And so you sum that up by talking about Bible verses banned by Bible-believing believers. So could you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. Gosh, there's so much to say there, too. So in my story, when you know I started getting in trouble, the church was really big, and every. The, the denomination loved me because I looked good, church was growing, um, but they were worried about some of the things I said. So they sent people to church saying— and what denomination? What denomination is this? This was Evangelical Presbyterian, and there's a huge story behind that because I was also ordained first in the Presbyterian Church USA. So Presbyterian Church USA was a, really a mainline group, and Evangelical Presbyterian Church was— a group that is in reaction to the liberalism in the mainline church. So my weird story is that I was kind of kicked out from the liberal side and from the evangelical side uh, and vicariously through my father and then through me. But in both directions, we were kicked out because we wanted to preach from the Bible. Um, So, you know, I had thought, well, the evangelicals, they're going to really hang on to the Bible. And lo and behold, they didn't either. Um, So anyway, I'm in this evangelical church it's it's grown. It's become kind of a flagship church, and um, they they started worrying about some of the things I had said because I think some mm-hmm. people had complained, and they would come and they would say to me, "Peter, you can't say this stuff." And I'd say, "What stuff?" And they'd say, "You know this stuff." And I did know this stuff. It they were Bible verses, but they couldn't say this stuff. So I, you know, I was re- I was real cautious. So in my sermons, everything controversial I said was just a Bible verse that I read, and then I didn't explain mm-hmm. it away. Like as an the big one for me was in First Corinthians fifteen, as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. The all is just really uh, consistent there, 
And then, and I had been preaching, not explaining Bible verses away for a long time and preaching through the revelation. Um, I got to the end when he said, behold, I make all things new. And in explaining, having explained the revelation, I realized I couldn't explain it away anymore because I came to really understand what Hades was, what Gehenna was, what the meaning of eternal really is and the ages and the fire. And the the other huge thing in Revelation, after I preached the Revelation, I went, I, I, I then preached through the entire gospel of Matthew, which took like three years. And then Mm -hmm. we went back and I started preaching Genesis again because I was getting in trouble. When I got back to Genesis, I thought, okay, I'm just going to be good. I preached this before. I'm not going to get in trouble. And I was just blown away by what I saw in the first chapter of Genesis because it mirrored what was going on in the Revelation, which is this amazing truth that God is telling a story that ends in the seventh day when it is finished and everything is good. Um, and we're still in the process of being created. So then I, that's when I published a couple books on, on Genesis as well. So you asked a big question there, David, so should I stop for a minute before we talk about the Bible verses banned by Bible believing believers? <laughs> Well, no, like, yeah, we I feel like I, the whole, I, this is my problem. I feel like the whole paradigm of the Bible has been banned by Bible believing believers and not a, so individual verses, but also the big story. And my I get most excited that we deal with this, the con, this bad concept of hell, because I think once you do, the gospel just becomes so profoundly beautiful. And, and it's everything that pretty much we believed. The only thing we're really throwing out is this idea that God's into endless conscious torture. Um, but we're, we're all still saved through Jesus. It's just that Jesus is not Jesus is not plan B. Jesus is plan A, and it's this amazing love story. Right. So it wasn't like um, uh, God, made, God made the creation, said, okay, it's good. And then, whoops, uh-oh, I need to come up with another plan. Right. Uh, it's know that that God had a plan all the way along. That there's that God's not. Yeah. Uh, and oh, even I though didn't see that coming. Yeah. So even though we write ourselves out of the story God is telling, He's constantly writing us back in. So I think the first chapter of Genesis is the revelation. There are all these series of sevens, and they mirror what's going on in the first chapter of Genesis. And whenever you get to seven. Amazing things happened in the Revelation, which is basically the end of time as we know it, and this eternal and beautiful reality, um, the the consummated kingdom of heaven. Well, the first chapter of Genesis, when you get when you walk through it, I think the first chapter is basically the history of all of time, and I kind of explain that. I can explain that scientifically. I can explain it exegetically. Um, I can sp- explain it theologically, and when I see it that way. Um, all the all this stuff makes sense that uh, God never God never lost control. He knew exactly what we would do. He knew what he was doing when he put us in a garden with an evil talking snake, two naked people, and a wall around this garden. And and the garden is a picture of much much more than what may you know people will argue about this how historical it is. The garden exists at the edge of time and eternity, and Scripture will go on to say this. The garden also exists somehow in the human heart, because it's so. The story is is so profoundly true on all these different levels, but it changes it changes the 
the big story in scripture from God created people good. We screwed it up and now God's trying to fix it to God is in the process of making us all good. And we are observing our own creation. So really salvation ultimately is agreeing with your own creation. And this is where the gospel becomes so profoundly simple. If I am really a creation of God, then absolutely everything is grace and I am good. But if I'm my own creation, then I live in this illusion that I have not created myself and I'm trapped in evil, which is um, the untruth, the uncreation. And so Mm -hmm. the story of salvation is just simply coming to terms with the fact that I have a good father who created me. And so I need to be 100% grateful. I need to things by faith. One of the things that I appreciated is um, your your talks about what the hell is hell, and you've got a uh, you've got a got a movie that you that you've made that explains that explains uh, the different uh, the different ideas of hell. That there we have the Gehenna hell and the Hades hell and the Lake of Fire and the Lake of Fire hell, and and how that and how that all works. And I think that's really really helpful. Could you give us an overview of that? Yeah, sure. And that's something that kind of came to light toward the end of Revelation, because I think it's in what, chapter 19 or 20, that um, it says death and Hades uh, were thrown into the lake of fire and um, death will be no more. And death is the dominion of Hades. Well, all of that only makes sense if, so I'll explain it. So let me explain it this way. And then you can, we can go back and talk about individual verses. But um, Hades or Sheol, Hades is the Greek term that translates the Hebrew term Sheol, right. is pictured in Scripture at this place of outer darkness, a place of separation from the manifest presence of God. Of course, we know God is everywhere, but in Hades, people are not aware of his presence, so they exist in the darkness. And in the Old Testament, there are levels to Hades. Um, so, you know, there are, it's like a place of... I don't know, unawareness or sleep, but there are places where the sleep is much more restless and troublesome, but it's a a separation from God. And then the other picture that emerges in scripture is a picture of the Ionios fire or the fire of the coming age. Um, And scripture is really clear that our God is a consuming fire. And when you follow this all the way through, it becomes obvious that the fire, true fire, the fire that scripture talks about, the eternal fire is not evil, but it's actually the very presence of divinity. And in the revelation, it'll often say the lake of fire and brimstone. The word for brimstone can also be translated divinity. It's the same word. So mm-hmm. it's it's really the divine you, fire. Yeah. So the fire is the manifest presence of God. And then the thing that separates the manifest presence of God from the unmanifest or the absence of manifest absence of God is this boundary that I believe is uh, pictured as Gehenna or another word for it might be judgment. So in the revelation, the inside the new Jerusalem, it's like, it's like the inside of the temple. It's a coming age. It's, it's that which is eternal and outside are the people that weep and gnash their feet. There's a valley that surrounds two sides of the modern-day Jerusalem that's called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, or Gehenna. So I've been there. But to get into Mm -hmm. Jerusalem, you also often had to pass through that valley. So uh, it makes sense to me, and I think this is where Scripture makes sense, that that, um, Gehenna is the boundary of 
this of the presence of God. So if I'm in opposite, if I hate God, well, I'm going to hate heaven. It's going to burn me. And so people hide from God in Hades in the outer darkness. So Hades is where we run to get away from God. Um, the fire is the very presence of God and Gehenna is the boundary between the two. If, if you're in opposition, so the, the, it's interesting because the judgment is, is really salvation. It's entering the city. But if you mm-hmm. hate God, you're not, you're not going to be able to be saved because heaven is union with God. So how can union with God be a good thing if, if you hate God? So the thing that God has what? to create in us is that trust in him. One of the things that helped me was uh, I read reading where Jesus talks about the unrighteous being thrown in a blazing furnace, and mm-hmm. well, that's that's scary. Um, but then it said that in the blazing and furnace, what would happen would be there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah. So that doesn't sound like a real that doesn't sound like a real fire because if in a real fire there would just be screaming and silence. But it sounds like, no, these people are somehow existing in this fire, but it's doing something to them. It's, it's bringing to their minds the truth of their situation that's so hard for them to realize that it's yeah. causing them to weep. And then yeah. Jesus in another place talks about people are cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I started to realize there's something metaphorical going on. It's, it's not they're cast into darkness and they bump into things. They're cast into darkness and somehow they can't escape. Either the, yeah. the fire or the darkness makes them not able to escape the truth well, they, that think, has to be faced before they can become free. Yeah. So there's a verses in the Old Testament that the fire even reaches down into the depths of Sheol. So what are people weeping and gnashing their teeth about? They're being haunted by the by the fire. They're being haunted by the truth. And what are people, I don't know which scripture you're referring to, because I don't remember one that talks about people weeping and gnashing their teeth in, in the fire. I, I mean, I do think there's, there's, there's like, um, oh, well, I'll get back to this in a minute. But anyway, yeah, the mm-hmm. process of, of being purified by the fire is painful. And that's really what Gehenna is. Here's something I had to struggle with is, and then let me tell you a story. Um, okay. The problem with the word metaphor is whenever we use the word metaphor, we think, well, if the fire is a metaphor, we think that fire in this world is less real than the fire of the next world. I kind of think it's just the opposite, that the things in the next world are actually more real. So that eternal fire is real, but I think we're being transformed into creatures of fire. So on, you know, on Pentecost, the fire fell on the church and the temple in the Old Testament gets filled with fire. Well, if we're the temple, then ultimately we're going to be filled with fire. So a lot of what rocked my world was while I was preaching to the revelation, we were praying for a friend that had come out of ritual abuse and Satanism. And unless you've seen something like this, it's really hard for people to believe. But the things we encountered were really so breathtaking and the lies of the evil one were so dark. Um, But we learned that if we called on the love of God to fill the room, there was just the same effect as if we called on the fire of God to fill the room. The fire comforted us and burned evil, just like love comforted us and burned evil. And then I began to look back at scripture and realize, wow, love really is a fire, which is exactly what the Song of Solomon says. So when we say God is one, we also say God is a fire. He's a consuming fire and God is love. Well, it's not like he's part love and part fire. 
he's all love and all fire. And mm-hmm. you, you know, if you, when you're a little kid and you got in trouble and you're mad at your mom and dad and they come in and they give you a hug and they forgive you, you remember like there were times when it just burned your ego. Well, I think the thing that will be partly a, a surprising revelation for all of us when we pass from this mortal existence is that that fire, that thing that burned our ego at that time was more real than the world in which we live in now. So that's where the, you know, that's where I, some people will speak of in this camp, will speak of the fire as not really being as being metaphorical. And I'd go, no, I think the fire is actually God. I think our experience of burning in this world is metaphorical and to resist God in the next world is a real, is a real burning, but the burning has a purpose. It burns away our ego so that, um, we, we, we actually even become filled with, with the fire. One of the things uh, when I was working on my book, I, I tried to go through all of the places where I thought somebody might be reading through the New Testament and say, well, there, there it says that God destroys people in, in the fire. And so there's a passage in uh, Matthew 13, 49 to 50, where Jesus warns, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then what I just noticed is that later on, there's another place where Jesus talks about people being thrown into outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and so the, the idea is, is, that, is that, well, sometimes people will say, oh, so you don't believe in hell. I mean, they'll tell, like, I, I'll say, I'll be explaining my belief in Christian universalism or universal reconciliation. They'll say, oh, you don't believe in hell. I said, well, I believe in the outer darkness and the blazing furnace. I believe that... Uh, if if we are not yet fit for the kingdom of love, that there has to be some way that God that God deals deals with yeah. that, and and so and 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 if anybody says, oh well, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm just going to I'm just going to do my own thing my whole life, and I'm just going to be as bad as I want to be. I say, well, okay, you know, God will give you that rope, but but. When you get to where that ultimately leads, you will wish you hadn't gone there. You're not winning anything. I mean, you're yeah, losing exactly. all the way. You're losing now and you're losing then. And you will wish that you had not. That just because God is love doesn't mean that God still isn't a blazing, isn't, can't be a blazing fire that you will not want to be in. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- you said so many things there. Well, one thing that's fascinating if you use Bible software, but you can just do this in an English Bible too. Go look at all the things that have been destroyed. In the Old Testament, it's absolutely everything. It's Israel, it's the whole world gets destroyed. In the New Testament, um Paul gets destroyed. He says it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. Well, what happened to the old Paul? Well, he got burned up on the road to Damascus. The word for destroyed is usually the Greek word apolumi in the New Testament. It's also mm-hmm. translated lost. So when Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost, he's, you can translate that. I came to seek and to save the destroyed. And when things get destroyed in the biblical mind, they turn back to dust. And I always say, well, we were made from dust. So just because God destroys you doesn't mean he can't remake you. Um, right. The, and, the, the, and, Sodom, the story of Sodom is, is that same, same yeah, way. And Sodom, Sodom is reduced. Is reduced yeah, Sodom and gets Ezekiel, saved. Yeah. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16. Says that, 
Yeah, that Sodom will be restored. Well, what was there to restore? Yeah. It was a smoking yeah, exactly. ruin. Yeah, and God <laughs> and God recreates them. And I go, and but this is the it's it's almost hilarious because I want to say to people, you do know that you're gonna die, right? Your body will turn to dust. We will all be destroyed. I think so. This is where I say to people, look, I'm an annihilationist too, because scripture is very clear that God's gonna destroy absolutely everything, and then he's gonna make everything new. And at the cross, we we agree to our own death and resurrection. We agree to losing losing our ourself. And f Jesus said this over and over again: unless you lose your life or your psyche, for me, you can't you can't find it. So I would you know I think Scripture speaks of this world as a womb. I have to die to myself in this womb of a world to be born into the next world. But it really is me. It's the spirit, the true me, that passes into the next world. But there's that. But there is that process of of death and destruction. And then w when you think of it that way, the love of God makes so much sense. God is a God is a dad, and He will discipline His. You know. So so I would say to my kids, I, I you know I could I would say, look, there there is absolutely no chance and this this isn't true because i'm an earthly dad but i think the heavenly dad is this way there is no chance that i will ever not love you i just always love you that's just the way it is but there is a very good chance that you might get grounded there's a very good chance that you may <laughs> suffer a lot of pain if you go against my will but it's never because i don't love you it's precisely because i do love you and when you look at it that way hades and gehenna make a whole lot of sense it's it's just that our dad, you know, we have this this analogy with a father and a child here. Well, we have a big dad, and he has huge plans for us. And if you go against his will, well, yeah, he he's. I just preached this sermon last week. He's his word is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He'll take you down, but not because he doesn't love you. It's because he will not let you remain in that that prison of darkness that we call sin. When I was uh, doing my, uh, I did a doctor of ministry paper on the preaching and the topic of hell, and I looked at the different different ways that people had, had talked about hell, and one of the ways was uh, eternal conscious torment. So I was reading, it was kind of hard for me because I was reading these people that were advocating for eternal conscious torment, for a God of eternal conscious torment. That was kind of hard to read, but I wanted to really try to understand their arguments best I could. And one of the arguments was that in the 15th chapter of Luke, the coin, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son are all said to be in a state of apolumi, or a state of destruction. And so they were arguing that that you can be eternally consciously tormented because all these three things were lost but still existing. So you can be destroyed and lost but still existing. But they wanted to argue that means, therefore, God can keep hell going forever. But then once I started putting it all together, I said, wait a second, I can use that same argument to say, okay, God can destroy something, but it's still there in some kind of primal form. And that means that God could also restore it and, and, and bring it back. So it was funny because it was ultimately an argument from the eternal conscious torment camp about Apollumi, not meaning going out of existence completely, that actually yeah. to me. Well, it's just... It, yeah, it's just stupid. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, Luke 15 is all about how 
God is into finding lost things and how excited he gets when they're found. And it's in Luke that Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. So what they're arguing is that God does not, that God's word does not accomplish that for which it was sent. They're arguing that God is a failure. Well, who is it that wants to argue that? The evil one wants to argue that. And that is the evil one's argument. That's the argument he uses on all of us to get us to surrender to the darkness. That, well, God really doesn't love you. You're an exception. You're different. God doesn't love you. He loves other people, but not you. Or you've screwed up so bad, God is unable to save you. You're lost and there's nothing you can do about it. You know, I think. So God says, God says, screams I, just yeah, the screams opposite. Differently. Yeah. So God says, God says, I love you in, in your mind and I will not, I will not fail with you. And then Satan comes along and says, but, and, uh, and I, you've, you have an interesting way of putting that. You said that Satan has a big, but. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this whole hell thing, I think, yeah, is Satan's big, but, and, um, man, we were, we did a class on this at church and I have a friend I've known for a long time. And I got to the end of the class and I was saying, you know, we preach this beautiful message of God is love and salvation and my brothers and sisters in the church, because that's what they are. They preach this. And then we get to the end and we say, but hell. And when we say, but hell, and, and we mean, but endless conscious torment, we undo all the wonderful things that, that we just said. And I said, I think, part of the calling on our church or the calling on our church that I think is your calling too, David. And those of us kind of that are pointing this out is to expose Satan's big butt. The moment I said that this friend in the back, she kind of went catatonic and we had this crazy battle with a de demonic things. I think, I think Satan and God is doing beautiful things in her life now. And there's a, there's a really big story there, but I really believe that eternal conscious torment or endless conscious torment is the way I like to say it, which is more mm -hmm. precise, is is uh, really is Satan's big butt. And and the butt undoes God's judgment. There's the other thing that's crazy. We've taught people to run away from God's judgment. And God's judgment is to save. God's judgment is to make us in his image. Judgment simply, it, it means decision or choice. So, what I like to say is, look, God, God, and this is what I think Karl Barth would say and what he would, would talk about a lot is that God is the one with free will. So it's scripture over and over screams a couple of things. And, and God says this to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. In other words, mercy is his decision. And then what he reveals is, and I choose to save all my creation. You got a problem with that? Well, then, then you're in outer darkness. You're getting burned by the fire. You've got a problem with the judgment of God. Well, Satan comes along, and, and the, God's judgment is salvation. Jesus, his name means God is salvation. Jesus is God's mm -hmm. judgment. So how is Satan going to come along and undo that? Well, Satan is going to do all he can to convince everybody God is not salvation, that God does not choose to be Jesus. And... So when the church comes along and says, well, there is this group of people that God cannot save um, because he doesn't want to or because they have or because their will is stronger than his will. Yeah, that's Satan's big butt that just undoes the gospel. And so it's no wonder that that people listen and say, well, this is this is 
just a crock, you know. I, and yeah, what, well, what I think is hard now is it's hard for the, the I the and then I could go on forever. I get worked up over this, but I mean, I love the church. I really believe the church is God's bride, but but the institutional church in many ways is the biggest enemy to the gospel, just like the Pharisees were the biggest enemy of the gospel 2000 years ago. Well, I think that we're, uh, uh, if I could, if I could put it this way, uh, you don't think God has a big butt. No, <laughs> there's no, no I, there's I, no, there's no, there's, God is love and there is no, butt there. Right. Right. Uh, exactly. God is love and never stops being love. And I think that what's exciting is you know, we're kind of, uh, we're kind of coming around. We're kind of coming back to the future in a way, because in a way we're returning to a lot of insights that were present in the early church, but just got the, the Western Christian tradition overshadowed it. Some really interesting things there. I think that's what I'd like to do. I'd like to have another conversation with you and talk some about, um, you know, how we think about time and how we think about the aeons and, and that's just a big conversation. And, and once you sort of start thinking about the ages and the aeons and time and how all that works, that can really be, that can really be helpful too. So how about we come back, we have another conversation about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big topic. Okay. All right, Peter. Well, thanks for this first conversation and we'll talk again soon. <laughs> yeah. Okay, David. Okay, thank thanks. you. Appreciate you and what you're doing. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate you too. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.